Hey guys, I'm Abby. And I'm Ricky. And, and this, this is Woman to Woman, a gender leadership podcast. Welcome back, guys. On today's episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about the imposter syndrome. So basically, it's a psychological pattern in which an individual doubts their accomplishments and has a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud, despite external evidence of their competence and like their accomplishments and things that they're doing. They're not lining up with this internalized fear. So a study out of the University of Texas at Austin um, had published in the Journal of Counseling and Psychology that suggests the imposter phenomenon in some case can degrade the mental health of minority students who already perceive prejudice against them. Mm -hmm. You can definitely see that within like the education system. And they have like these symbols and representations of what Mm -hmm. intelligence is and like these different scales and tests. More often than not, black and Latinx students, they're being made out as they're intellectually inferior to like the white counterparts it's not a thing realistically it's just like the tests and things that are being generated Mm -hmm. are biased so it's like like, they're kind of going against you like you're not prepared to start with yeah you're not coming in with this basic knowledge yes but it's like the odds were already stacked against you Mm -hmm. so it's like you weren't coming in with the things necessary in order to do well, perform well on these exams, et cetera, whatever. Mm-hmm. So, Ricky, are there any times in your life that you have experienced imposter syndrome? Most definitely. <laughs> Specifically, when it comes to, like, a woman of work, it's like somebody will ask me, like, what are we about? And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, you really asking me to, like, vouch for all the women yeah. in this organization for this initiative? Um, I mean... Yeah, I like put I you on the spot. I think I know, but I don't know the definition. Let me put it up on our website. Right. Like right. all of a sudden, I'm questioning the knowledge that I have about like these three years that I have experienced here. This job is taking up like the majority of my time at UNC. Like, right. and all of a sudden now I don't know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It's like as soon as I become a spokesperson, I'm just like, well, I don't know as much as I thought I did. Yeah. Like, so it's like I don't want to. You're gonna mess. I don't want to. Yeah. Exactly. Like I don't want to mess it up. Mm-hmm. But even though you know that you're you're qualified exactly. and you've been in the game and you know everything about it, it's right. just like when people put you on the spot, exactly, it kind of shifts it. But that's also a common thing with, like you said, like taking tests and everything like that. And even when, I guess, talking about my experiences, I'm always like, well, to get here, I basically just kind of BSed everything. Like, I don't really know what I'm talking about. I just kind of... Mm-hmm. I kind of finesse my work. I kind of get all this yeah. stuff done. It's like, it's like okay. discrediting yourself. Exactly. For some reason, it's like you don't want to come off as being too smart. Like being too smart isn't the thing that everybody wants to do. Mm-hmm. Like it's not the cool thing. Like, oh, you get that? Oh, okay. Yeah, I feel like for me, definitely coming to UNC's campus, it was like an eye opener to my imposter syndrome mm-hmm. because first and foremost, I got into UNC. So right. that was an accomplishment in itself. But like I kind of doubted myself, chalking it up to like, well, that was based on high school. Am mm-hmm. I really that good? You know, that was my extracurriculars. Being on campus even more so perpetuated that in that I was in these classes mm-hmm. and like I was performing, you know, well, but like there were people who were performing even better. I kind of doubted myself in that did I make these grades or is it just like, is that the average? I remember even when I made like a hundred on exam and it's like, oh, I made that. But it was like, maybe the the exam was easy. Right. Like maybe the professor had like slided the exam, you know, rounded it up and it wasn't based on my own merit or that I was smart enough to do it. 
and then like getting accomplishments mm-hmm. on campuses and things like that. I try to credit other people mm-hmm. when at the end of the day, it was my own merit and my own work ethic that got me to where I was. Right. Oftentimes, I don't appreciate myself enough in terms of that. Yeah, I think UNC definitely reinforces how like, oh, you think you're smart. You you were in the top 10 or whatever, mm-hmm. but now you're like you can be in a class that's full of valedictorians. Yeah. Just because y'all came from different spots or whatever, you have 10 valedictorians in your class and it's like, wow. Right, right. Okay, like I thought I was doing something, but then I did a summer bridge program and I was basically sitting side by side, four or five valedictorians out of a group of possibly 40-ish, but it's like, but still, all these other people <clears throat> are just as smart, if not smarter, but because of a grade scale, because of this and the other, and yeah. I was like, oh, I thought I was something. Like, I really mm-hmm. thought my GPA was really high, but then I was like, also, well, I did have two sisters that came before me, so yeah. I have a legacy, because I have family members, aunts and relatives or whatever that came here. Mm-hmm. I'm also a woman of color. I'm multiracial. They needed me for diversity purposes, right. and all these aspects that made me look different like oh well I'm not getting here because of like because I'm smart as everybody else it's just because they needed me for this one little part Mm -hmm. that definitely gives me this inkling of me being really like fraudulent yeah and I definitely feel like just in college in general the environment is so competitive Mm -hmm. it perpetuates and stimulates that fear of you're not being good enough but there's always those things that sneak into the back of your mind like oh you could have did this better why didn't you do it this way Mm -hmm. look at what they did you get into that habit of comparing yourself to other people and like comparison is a thief of joy so I feel like you just have to focus on yourself take time to celebrate and to highlight your accomplishments oftentimes you get caught up in the oh yeah that was good I made a good grade moving on now Mm -hmm. I gotta go on to the next assignment but no like take time to relish in that that's a major accomplishment for you but the imposter syndrome that's like a cop-out of you're not being celebrated enough that's definitely This episode is sponsored by the American Association of University Women, the nation's leading voice promoting equity in education for women and girls. Since their founding in 1881, AAUW members have examined and taken positions on the fundamental issues of the day, educational, social, economic, and political. Thank you, AAUW. To learn more about the impacts of the imposter syndrome, our executive producer, Erica Wallace, had the chance to catch up with a former W chair, Angelica Matos, who is a residence hall director at UConn. So with me today, I have Angelica Matos, who is a residence director at UConn. But before she went to UConn, she was a community director at UNC and also co-founder and co-chair of Women of Words. So we're super excited to have a chance to catch up with Angelica and talk with her about the imposter syndrome. So thank you so much again for chatting with us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. I miss being over there at UNC and working with the Women of Work. Yeah. So to start off, we like to ask all of our guests the three W's. So can you tell us who are you, what do you do, and why do you do it? So, my name is Angelica Mato. Currently, I'm a residence hall director here at the University of Connecticut or UConn. Beyond my job description, I am also a first-generation college alum. I am Puerto Rican, identified as a woman of color. Um, I'm a mom, a single mom of a three-year-old little boy from New York City. And outside of that, 
I really try to do mentorship and get involved um, a lot with my my sorority, which is a multicultural sorority. Um, when I think of why do I do it, so I think of my job and working with students at, at UConn. I think of my time as a student. Um, I went to a predominantly white institution, which was Lehigh University. Um, I loved my time there. I became very self-aware of my identity during my time there. Um, as a New York City girl, I was used to being around all different types of cultures and identities. And so coming to Lehigh as a 17-year-old straight out of the city, um, it was definitely a culture shock for me. And so for me, knowing that I didn't seek out a lot of resources um, willingly because I just didn't see a lot of people that looked like me um, in administrative positions. And so I wanted to kind of dismantle some of that by giving back to any institution and working with students and, and being able to help them through their hardest times and also knowing that I'm supporting and, and reflecting the, you know, underrepresented student body experience. And so that's a lot of why I do the work that I do. Yeah. And I think something that you brought up, the, thinking about like how not only students, but we as professionals kind of question our our worth and our belonging and navigating various spaces really ties into um, this week's topic of imposter syndrome, because we do a lot of times question um, am I supposed to be here? You know, is this really my place in my space? So how would you describe imposter syndrome? Yeah, um, so I would describe imposter syndrome um, really kind of questioning, like, why am I here? Did I get in because I'm really, like, that smart and talented? Or did I get in because I was meeting some potential quotas there or invisible quota? You know, did I get in because of affirmative action even? Those are things that kind of all attribute to imposter syndrome and and what that experience may look like depending on, you know, what um, opportunity it is that you're pursuing or that you were provided. Um, And I think that's something that is pervasive, not only for women of color, but um, a lot of underrepresented populations and, you know, whatever endeavors that they're pursuing. So that's how I would describe imposter syndrome. So what do you think kind of the these doubts and this this questioning of your capability, where does that come from? I think part of it comes from just seeing other people's reactions when you tell them things. And so I will never forget there was a time at Lehigh. So again, that was my alma mater. Um, and I was 17, Puerto Rican, from New York. Majority of the students there uh, identified as white at Lehigh. And there was also a huge disparity in socioeconomic status and that many of the students that were attending were very wealthy. I was meeting people in my orientation group and I remember saying like, yeah, I, I'm Puerto Rican, I'm from New York, my name is Angelica. And just the visceral reactions, and maybe I overanalyzed, maybe I read too much into it, um, but I definitely internalized people's reactions to me, you know, kind of sharing my identities and who I was. And that I was in the same space as them. And and it, it was just a weird feeling. I And again, maybe I read too much into it because I, I was so self-aware of being different at that time. So a lot of the, um, the those questions of imposter syndrome and did I even get in here because I'm really like as smart as other people? Or did I get in because like, oh, she's going to really contribute to the diversity of our class? Those thoughts started kind of entering my mind um, after that experience in orientation my freshman year. Yeah, and I think a lot of students have have those moments. I, I know I talk to students all the time that not only do they question that themselves, but like people actually 
ask them those questions like to their face like oh so right. you, are you, you must be an athlete that's why you're here right. or oh right. you're native so that's y'all y'all get special money and that's why you're here um right. which to me is completely ridiculous and a lot of times we don't question other systems like legacy admissions it's like okay your parents went here so that's why you're here or right. your parent gave all this money and that's right. why you're here uh, so I think that's really interesting that not only, you know, race and ethnicity, but, you know, socioeconomic status and just like the elitism of like a parent attending institutions. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing, but nobody right. questions that. Exactly. A lot of those institutions have a big legacy turnover. Like it never crosses um, those minds of like, well, you know, you were highly considered differently because a lot of your family members went here like that's mm-hmm. something that you know is valuable in the admissions process but it just doesn't cross the mind the same way it does when you know the other which is our underrepresented students are entering um mm-hmm. a space so you talked about kind of a, a an example when you were a student when you experienced imposter syndrome can you talk about a time as a professional um where you felt imposter syndrome absolutely I feel like imposter syndrome became so much more apparent for me um, for the first time when I started working at UNC Chapel Hill. It was mostly because there's not a whole lot of Hispanics um, at UNC Chapel Hill, specifically professionals. For me, being the only Hispanic in my department um, was something that was like, oh, man, did I really do good in my interview? Like, I did that good? Or like, Am I really just going to shift the whole diverse perspective we do when we recruit and hire professionals here? Um, like, what's my role here? That's when it first kind of sparked for me. I will say that it it was very pervasive for me during my time there. And so I became more involved with the Women at Work initiative and meeting other women of color that work at the institution. And so I think that idea of imposter syndrome at that time started dismantling with Women in Work and then when I started job searching uh, to be closer to family. So I'm from New York City. And I started getting a lot of invitations for on campuses and all these things. And I was like, okay, well, maybe actually I'm good at interviewing. Like this might be, maybe my resume is mm-hmm. kind of, you know, solid. After that, once I got to UConn, I started wanting to pursue along the first dream of mine of applying to law school. That imposter syndrome came right back. And again, I was like, oh man, I don't know if I'm getting in because because I like I did well, my personal statement was that good, but I, at least I'm getting in. And but that imposter syndrome, I'm, it's kind of there right now as I like look to start in the fall. And I think I'm always going to question that until I get more involved. Um, but it's definitely you know every time I pursue a new opportunity and get it, because I don't go in thinking I'm going to get everything, um, is when that imposter syndrome kind of uh, sneaks back up on me. And I think that's kind of the the interesting part. It's like the more you achieve, it's like the more you feel it. It's like that achievement doesn't like, okay, I got this, so now I'm good. It's like, okay, there's even more pressure on you now that you've got this thing. I don't know if it ever stops. I know for me it hasn't yet. Yeah, so that's, that's the interesting part about it, I think, for me, or one of the interesting parts about it. So how do you see kind of the intersections of your identities as a woman and as a person of color? How does that influence your experience of the imposter syndrome? I'm like just so proud of being a woman. I don't know if it's because like of everything that's happening in our country, in our world, or being a mom. I don't know. I think part of some of the feedback that I got that was really hard to swallow um, 
whether it be here at UConn or at UNC was like, you know, you come off as intimidating um, or mm-hmm. you come off as, you know, you look like you don't want to be there. You know, I always followed up with what, what am I doing that's attributing to, to this perception of me? And a lot of it was my face, you know, how I talk. Um, and so for me, that's when my woman of colorness outside of like, okay, my womanhood, now my, my identity as a woman of color was starting to become apparent in that like, would I have been told anything about my face if I were a male? Like, if I were mm-hmm. a male colleague, are those men's faces being stared at in meeting spaces? Is um is a man ever told like, oh, you're you're being snarky or you're sassy? I've definitely been told those things in a one-on-one setting. Mm-hmm. I've never heard a man in a professional setting be told like, hey, you're a little snarky or you're a little sassy. It's like what? <laughs> and so yeah. for me, that's when I started saying like, okay, these are characteristics that are assigned to women. Or, or people that identify as women, and specifically women of color, that, that those terms mm-hmm. of like, you're intimidating, or, you know, you look like you don't want to be there. Like, am I, you know, what does that look like for you? And then, you know, upon me leaving UNC, and I had like my going away thing and all that, a lot of my students were there, and a lot of them were in tears. And, and I can see my, you know, you know, my colleagues and my leadership at that time, like, be really surprised, um, because they didn't mm-hmm. realize you relationships that I had with with the students Um, and so for me it's like you know when I come to a meeting I'm very like all right agenda here we go let's talk I'm not smiling and like that's just not who I am walking around New York City smiling just might get you hurt and so those type of things started kind of resonating like calling me outspoken or you know intimidating or whatever and for me I'm like I'm being assertive you know and so me being a woman um, and and the feedback that I got, it wasn't like, you know, you should work on, I don't know, relationship building, spending more time to get to know your colleagues, um, which is something that I know I have to work on because that's just not how I normally operate. Um, mm-hmm. But it was also, this is how you look in meetings. This is how you talk in meetings. This is how, and and I always would counter with, is this going to be my eval? And the answer was always no. So I'm just like, okay, so then I don't understand why we're having this conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And I understand, like, kind of making me a better professional. Another intersection of my identity was acclimating to working in the South. The way I am in meetings or how fast-paced I am and all that was just a nature of me being from a different part of the, the country. Some of it was, you know, you have to acclimate because you're in the environment. But in my mind, I also was like, well, I thought I was hired to contribute to the diversity of, mm-hmm. of a, you know, of any workplace, those nuances of my identity, especially my regional identity, which I never really thought of until I, I stepped out from my comfort zone and, and going to UNC, were things that became apparent in how I navigated just experiencing, you know, women of color in a workplace and, and all that. So how do you think kind of in general, how does the imposter syndrome contribute to the gender leadership gap? Kind of goes to my recent experience with um, my director slash mentor. You know, I feel like a lot of women, specifically women of color, um, and I'll speak for myself, you know, don't pursue things because they don't feel like they're quite ready for it. They don't pursue things because they don't believe that they would be someone that would stand out amongst, you know, other people applying for an opportunity. Even beyond just recently, I wanted to go to law school back in 2011 when I was a junior in college. 
And I was like, yeah, I'm definitely not getting in. Like, you know, in retrospect, I think it was a good idea because I definitely wasn't mature enough at that point in my life either. But I still, I talked myself out of it. And I, I didn't mm-hmm. even realize until recently that I registered for the LSAT back then too. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I totally blacked that out, I guess. For me now, was it still was kind of like a shot in the dark, but I also was trying to do everything I could, like preparing for the LSAT and whatnot. But I also realized that there were a lot of opportunities that I didn't feel comfortable, you know, applying for, like directed positions like my, you know, my mentor brought up and stuff, because I just didn't feel like I was ready. You know, I interview RA candidates because I want to be RAs. And I see a lot of women say like, you know, you can put me anywhere, you know, if I get this job, I'm just excited to have it. And I see the male candidates who, you know, at least traditionally don't score as well as our female candidates, um, but Mm -hmm. they seem so confident. They know what they want, whether or not they really should even be that confident <laughs> is a whole other yeah. question. But I do think right. that reflects itself in the larger scheme of things when we look at the gender leadership gap and that men or people that identify as, as men are just a little bit more confident and, you know, go for it and negotiate salaries and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And like, this is when I want to start. This is what I need. Um, and I do think that women are a little bit less assertive with that. Right. And that confidence, you know, your resume speaks a lot, but, you know, kind of like what my mentor said, you know, that confidence will get you the job sometimes more than your, your resume would. Yeah. So to kind of wrap up our conversation, why is addressing the gender leadership gap important to you? I don't want women to feel like they don't have a face or a voice. And a lot of times that starts with seeing people that look like you in those spaces. For me, you know, pursuing a law degree, I want to either work with Title IX offices or work in the general counsel's office at a university. I know, Mm -hmm. A, there's not a lot of women in those positions, but I know for sure there's not a whole lot of women of color. For me, it's super important to bring the experiences, the struggles or whatever of our women and our women of color to the table um, that are maybe not being considered in those conversations before decisions are being made or when policies are shifting. For me, that's important that our women moving forward don't feel that way and and that are also being advocated for in spaces that they're not in because they have someone that went through the same or similar struggles as they did. So I think for me, that's why it's so important in addressing the gender leadership gap. Enjoyed the podcast? Have comments, questions, or concerns? Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at UNC Women of Worth. That's UNC WOMXN of Worth. We here at the Women of Worth Initiative create and sustain a community for women of color and women who identify as members of underrepresented racial ethnic populations that will promote academic success, holistic student wellness and success, identity development, and sisterhood at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Hills. Our editor and co-producer Karami was also able to talk to Dr. Charlotte Blumel, Assistant Director of Health Promotion and Prevention at Student Wellness at UNC. So before we start off with the questions, we'd like to start with three things called the three W's. So who are you? What do you do? And why do you do it? Okay, let's see. Who am I? Um, I am a Connecticut-born, probably Southern-bred Black woman, queer woman. I am an educator, an advocate, and an activist on the low, not on the high. 
In my current role, as you said, I'm the Assistant Director of Health Promotion and Prevention and Student Wellness, and that primary function is really to support all the wellness programming that happens across campus for undergrads and graduate and professional students. Um, the aim is really to connect students to the dimensions of wellness, all eight of those, and recognize that it's holistic. It's kind of ever moving and changing, and our goal for our students is to be in harmony um, with their wellness. Why do I do it? I think as human beings, we get really um, tunnel vision in the things that we maybe want or aspire to do. Like currently, if you're a student, like you're really hyper focused on getting mm -hmm. those grades. If you are, you know, staff or a faculty person, you're kind of hyper focused on your function and maybe even taking care of students, getting things done. But we don't pause enough to take care of ourselves. And the problem with that is we really can't do our best work or be our best selves if we don't stop and pause long enough to take care of us. Cool. That's amazing. So how would you describe imposter syndrome? And what do you think are some of the signs of a person who is dealing with imposter syndrome? So I think um, the way that I would describe it is not believing that you are good enough, mm -hmm. smart enough or equipped um, to do a certain thing or to be engaged in a certain work. Um, somehow you are here on a, a fluke. If folks are familiar with A Different World, the Dwayne Wayne episode yeah. is about <laughs> puffing his cheeks in the back <laughs> and not really, you know, participating um, in that musical experience. Mm -hmm. and people are going to find out that I am just back here puffing my cheeks and I really don't <laughs> know what I'm doing. Kind of not believing that you are capable and that you can do whatever this thing is that you're setting out to do. I think how we recognize it is in our office, specifically when students come in either in crisis or not in crisis, and they have what we call a lot of negative self-talk. I got this particular grade, so I know maybe I'm not supposed to be here at Carolina. Mm -hmm. Or in comparison to my roommate or this other friend that I'm in organization with, they are just getting A's and B's and da 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 and I have a tutor and I'm barely getting a C. How am I going to make it? Or my test scores are just not up to par. So. For me, it's coming from the student where they're kind of situated in this negative space and really talking about themselves in a very negative way and um, thinking about ways how we can like you know pull them out of that. So where do you think the negativity stems from? Does it stem from like internal issues, external issues? Probably both and, right? Two mm -hmm. things can be true at the same time. I think internally we are very easy to criticize ourselves mm -hmm. because we maybe have... Um, set this really high bar mm -hmm. and if we don't meet that bar somehow we are less yeah and we don't stop and celebrate and pause like I said those uh tiny wins maybe mm -hmm. you know you got into Carolina step one mm -hmm. right like you're supposed to be here every day is not going to be a great day but every day you're here can be a good day so I think that's maybe part of the internal part I think externally campus energy campus culture says a lot of the same things to students, that we are high achieving, mm -hmm. we are, you know, these kind of smart, forward-thinking leaders, we are innovative, and we are all those things. But that external pressure mm -hmm. to be something that maybe um, resonates with perfection is a misnomer, right? That's not something that students should really lean into because perfection is not a real thing. Um, you can strive for greatness, you can have a lot, you can be attached to and connected to a lot of things, but what you want really more is intentional. You want to do things that resonate with you. You want to do things that help you feel good. So the messages definitely come from 
ourselves, but we can also get that in the environment that we're in, especially if it's a competitive environment. So we learned that individuals who deal with imposter syndrome are very successful, but often they can't really internalize their successes because of all the negativity that is internal or external that is impacting them. So why do you think successful individuals experience imposter syndrome? Because I saw this article and it was about Michelle Obama after she published her book, Becoming, and she was talking about how she still was facing imposter syndrome. So I'm just wondering, how do you think even successful people like her still are dealing with imposter syndrome? If I had to guess, I would say as someone who has dealt with that and sometimes still deals with it, um, you know, on occasion, Mm -hmm. it's when you're in imposter syndrome, it's sometimes like an outer body experience. Mm -hmm. You're like outside watching yourself do these great things and achieve these great things, but you're still questioning it. Mm -hmm. You're still saying, well, how come I was chosen for that? Or how come I won that scholarship? Or how is it that out of all these students, I was picked for this one amazing small thing? And it's almost not believing in yourself as much as the people who have maybe propped you up to get to those places, poured into you to get to those places, believe in you. And I think that's what it is. We maybe don't necessarily believe in our own skills or in our own accomplishments in the way that maybe others who have maybe mentored us and took care of us do. It's hard. It's it's hard to internalize that and think about it. So have there been times in your life where you experienced imposter syndrome? And if so, how are you able to push past them? Um, Probably the most recent time was when I got into graduate school to get my doctorate. Mm -hmm. I have a doctorate in adult education with a concentration in health. Um, and I got that from NC State. Mm-hmm. And when I was applying to schools, I got accepted to several schools. And I was like, really? Because, you know, I was just applying just to see what was going to happen. And then it got real. I was like, oh, I get to go to <laughs> doctoral school? Okay. Um, and when I started my program, I was looking around and there was not a lot of people in the room who looked like me. And so that was my very first, like, what are you doing here? Some of these folks already know each other. Mm-hmm. They were NC State students already. They left their master's programs. It was a very scary, probably first two years. It took me six and a half years to finish my program because I worked full time while I was doing it. And I think my really biggest overcoming moment, my um, committee chair of my dissertation, Dr. Tuary Bowles, and she may or may not even remember this. I walked into her office and I was like, I quit. Can't do it. Stressed out. Pretty sure my hair is falling out. Might have an ulcer. This is just too hard. And she's just is a big energy and she has like a deep voice. And she was like, Scholar Blumel, what is it that you believe you are actually trying to quit? I was like, what do you mean? Like, I'm quitting this program. This is just too much. I can't do it. Her response to me was, well, actually, you're not quitting the program. You are quitting on you. And I thought when you started this program that you were important to yourself I know you're important to me. I know you're important to your community. So you're quitting on you. How are we supposed to handle that? Now I can call your mama. And when she said that, I was like, what? (laughs) I am a grown woman. You about to call my mom? She did, but I will not delve into that story. (laughs) She said, you have to think about this as part of your story. This does not define you. Mm -hmm. The hardness of it is temporary. Once you get to this point of done, when you get to this point when your dissertation is finished, you will have accomplished so much more than you can even imagine. And it's not just the degree. Mm -hmm. It is what it means to be an accomplished scholar, what it means to be a black queer woman who has 
a terminal degree. The fact that she poised it or positioned it in such a way to say that I was quitting on myself, mm-hmm. it really was jarring to me because she was right. Who was going to cry if I quit this program? Mm-hmm. My professors weren't necessarily going to cry. She might a little bit, but you know what I mean? There wasn't anything that was tragically going to happen other than me letting me down. I appreciate that you brought up the fact that you had someone else put like your situation into a different perspective. So for people who might not have that kind of support system, how can they kind of have like a different perspective so that they can avoid this whole imposter syndrome? When I taught um, at ECU, something I used to say to my students that I don't think they appreciate it in the moment, but maybe after they got out of my class mm-hmm. is I used to say there's no such thing as a higher ed emergency. And they would look at me like, this is real. This paper is real. This project is real. What do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> and I would say to them, emergency means life or death. So question one, mm-hmm. are you going to die? Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. Question two, what do you need? You can answer both those questions. The second part is the thing that I, your instructor, professor, um, the folks who are positioned to help you can figure out with you. But don't let this one thing derail all your progress, derail all of um, the work and what you put into it. I appreciate that. Uh, to switch gears a little bit, how do you think your identities as a woman and a person of color influence your experience of imposter syndrome? Disproportionately, right, when we get into certain spaces in higher education, in certain programs, sometimes we are the only one. Mm-hmm. Sometimes our professors, our instructors, don't look like us. If you don't see someone who's done it, you almost feel like it's a fluke. How come there's not 30 African-American black professors, women walking around here in a cluster? Mm -hmm. We haven't seen ourselves in these roles and in these spaces. So we, I think, be internalized that we don't belong here. So um, are there any other identities that contribute to your imposter syndrome? Um, So I do also identify as a queer woman and um, I've been married since 2015. Mm -hmm. Uh, My partner, Amy, is amazing. So this is when things get a little mm, dicey, right? Mm -hmm. Because who do I show up as first? Obviously, from a phenotype, Mm -hmm. I look like a black woman or a woman of color. So that shows up whether I say anything or not. Me being queer is something that I typically choose to disclaim. And all those things matter. But I guess they maybe matter to varying degrees, depending on what it is I'm trying to accomplish and who it is that I'm working with. Who I am, I like to show up with my whole self wherever I am. But I also recognize that sometimes showing up with my whole self may keep me out of certain places, especially my queer identity still to this day, or may cause people not to listen to me as intently or um, maybe even respect the things that I'm saying because they don't have this maybe natural inclination to be accepting of queer folks. Mm -hmm. I am happy to say that that is changing, but it is still not necessarily um, easy in all spaces. How do you think imposter syndrome contributes to the gender leadership gap? Um, Probably going back to what we talked about, being able to see folks in these spaces who look like you. I don't want to mess up any of the statistics, but I think it's like less than 3% Mm -hmm. um, of women are uh, women of color are in high level board of trustees, board yeah. of governor leadership roles. Mm-hmm. That's significant. You may walk into this space and there may not be one single person in a room of 10, 15, 20, 100 people mm-hmm. who look like you. And it's hard 
to connect sometimes when you don't see that community. And I think not to speak for us myself, when I go to places and I see their black women, you know, and it's only a couple of us, I'm probably going to get closer to her and sit next to her. And then I'm going to look at her outfit like, girl, I like them shoes. And then we're just going to start talking <laughs> because we're going to make community. Yeah. Right. And I think for us, community is important. And it's at least it's important for me. And if you go into a workspace, especially high level leadership, Fortune 500, mm-hmm. even here in academia, there's no one like you. That community isn't there. Imposter syndrome can definitely weigh on you. Also, since I'm really interested in film, I did some research. And for women of color in the film industry, it's honestly like about like 3%. Mm-hmm. And that's really sad because there's so many films that are coming out. Like now we see like a lot more diverse films. But there's so many films that are coming out and you don't see like a lot of women of color or different identities. And that gap is really there. So I feel like there's a lot of imposter syndrome definitely in there as well. And we have so many great rich stories to yeah. tell. And I think... Our stories have been told by other people for so long, Mm -hmm. and then we start to internalize them as truths. Mm -hmm. I think something that has always been important to me is to like never believe someone else's story about you Mm -hmm. who doesn't Mm -hmm. (laughs) represent you, right? Mm -hmm. Never let that person tell your story. So that's so important to have, you know, women, women of color to be telling our stories. Mm -hmm. I agree. So we also learned that for many minority students on college campuses, imposter syndrome can have a negative effect on their mental health. Mm -hmm. So what are you or what are some ways that we can combat our imposter syndrome and preserve our mental health and wellness? So something we talked about, find your community, find your folks. I think the sooner you're able to do that when you get to college, probably the better. Maybe your first couple of communities may not necessarily be your niche. It kind of takes time to get a little traction behind that. Things that like Dr. Devetta Holman supports Sister Talk, um, Women of Worth, mm-hmm. those things like really align yourselves with those communities because chances are there are women in those spaces who have been there, who have done that, who have experienced the same things you've experienced. And now you can talk through strategies and they can tell you about things that work for them and mm-hmm. open up some of the gatekeeping for you. Mm-hmm. When I went to the registrar, I talked to such and such mm-hmm. and she's really great. Or when I had to go um, to CAPS, I talked to so-and-so, and she was really amazing. It really just help you make those community connections, especially when you have some mental health concerns um, or other stressors that are kind of keeping you from being able to thrive um, on campus. That's some great advice, too. For our last question, um, why is addressing the gender leadership gap important to you? Ultimately, unless we talk about these things, these things will probably never change because Mm -hmm. hopefully the talking creates action and the action creates this almost now we have this normalcy of we are going to see women sitting in these seats, women of color being in charge of these companies, making their own inroads, moving from surviving to thriving, but we have to start with the conversation. Mm -hmm. So what's the reality of what we are experiencing why are we experiencing it and how do we combat it? So I think the conversation will hopefully lead to the change and that's why the conversations matter. So thanks again to our guests, Angelica Matos and Dr. Charlotte Blumel. This episode was produced by Ricky Head, Abby Murray, Kamisha Chalmers, and Karami Ba. And our executive producer is Erica Wallace. Our quote this week is brought to you by Maggie Warren. Um, You don't have to attain perfection or mastery to be worthy of the success you've achieved.
So make sure you guys tune in because next week we're going to be talking about the superwoman syndrome.